Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Exponential Minds. My name is Nicholas Badminton. I'm a futurist that travels the world speaking to companies and governments about where the world is going in the next 5, 10, 20 years. Today, I'm incredibly excited to speak to a great friend of mine, Rafiq Bosch. I first met Rafiq when I uh, delivered a keynote for an event in, for SAP in Vancouver. And he came up to see me after the event. He said, I do foresight and whatever. And it's like, oh, that, that's great. And we've become really good friends. And he's moved on from SAP, now works for Slalom Consulting, where he's building out a foresight practice, which is incredibly exciting. Uh, Rafiq's from South Africa, and he was the co-founder of the World Future Society South Africa chapter. And that, and that chapter was instrumental in making submissions to the South African government's 2030 National Development Plan. Rafiq is also pursuing a PhD in future studies at Stellenbosch University down there in South Africa. Uh, his research area is the use of future techniques to help emerging economy nations participate in the fourth industrial revolution. And he spoke about that a couple of years ago at Dark Futures, and I'll put a link down to his keynote uh, below in the description. It's an incredible talk, and I'm really happy to have you on the line here, Rafiq. Welcome to the Exponential Minds podcast. Thank you very much, Nick. It's uh, quite a pleasure to be here, quite a privilege. What's fascinating, when we met, you were obviously working in a corporate context. You weren't focused on futures Correct. Uh, when, when, when you were working at SAP. And you came up to me and you're so stoked. And you, you came to the, the, the Canada Futurists uh, Vancouver chapter meetings and we really got into it. And it's clear that you've got a background in futures thinking. So can you tell us a little bit how you got into that and, and what that journey's been like over, over the last few years? Yeah, sure. And actually, you're spot on, Nick. I mean, I... Um... I guess you could say like in my day job, I'm an IT, um, uh, IT professional doing IT leadership, IT transformation projects. So I think that's my sort of professional background and has been for far too many years. Um, in about 2008, a colleague turned me on to uh, uh, the Masters in Future Studies program at Stellenbosch University. That's really my introduction to the world of futures and strategic foresight. And I've got to say, uh, it, you know, it was a life-changing experience. The other way I describe it is that it broke my brain, and then that process was putting my brain back together. And I emerged from that program actually a very different, different person. So that's back in, that's like 12 years already. Um, a couple of years later, you've alluded to the work we did as the World Futures Society in South Africa. It was always clear to me that maybe as a second act in my career, that this futures space was in need of development and that there's a, com a small community that was needing to grow and that that would be a good way to get involved. When we moved to Canada in 2014, um, I, yeah, I was at SAP doing more tech stuff and that's kind of where we met. But I think the, the, the opportunity really sparked to get much more actively involved in futures. And I'd say it's now no longer a side thing. It's maybe like half my brain 
is is there is uh, when I left SAP and joined and joined Slalom because I, I I think that happened coincidentally with me starting the PhD. You know, just the process of understanding opportunities to explain to people or to engage with people about more futures consciousness and just this con constant if there's one theme that i've that i'd say has been constant since 2008 in the exactly the same way that we met i have the sense that there are many people what i call hidden futurists dotted all over the world and what we need is for those folks to come out into the fore to bring that futures consciousness into play and just you know have a much better experience as a, as a species than than we are right now I want to go into that idea of hidden futurists. Is this the idea that anyone that can sort of have a creative thought about what a future could be is, is a futurist, but they're, they're, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have the confidence to step forward and, and sort of make that claim? For me, there are two, I distinguish between two things. So we talk about futures consciousness and then futures techniques. I think futures consciousness captions what you just described. I think a lot of people have this natural either curiosity or even call it a core belief that there is something about the future that is fascinating and, and, and engaging and intriguing. The pivot to futures techniques is the idea that there, that there is actually a scientific discipline that helps us connect with the future in a very different way maybe than most people assume how the future works. I think most people by default would think, and even I thought this before I encountered this field, that the future is some predetermined country out there and that we're all kind of by default sort of just floating towards it. And for me, the big shift was about understanding that when you apply certain techniques and you, and you adopt certain philosophies, the future is not pre-written, it's not unaffectable, it's not inaccessible from here in the present. And I think that's where, where the intrigue is, because what that creates in terms of opening up possibilities is the options to, to, to really, and I say this do a lot better, I'll illustrate with an example. In South Africa, and this is personal to me, because in South Africa, the impact of futurists in transitioning and shaping the transition to democracy that is there in South Africa now, there were many paths available. In fact, the standard model of African countries achieving democracy was some kind of a violent civil war based conflict. And we certainly did have some of that in South Africa. But I think uh, the story of South Africa ultimately in, in history is about how we avoided that, that eventuality and actually went somewhere far more positive. We talked about the rainbow nation, far more conciliatory. And futurists had a big role to play in that. So it was for me a very real instance of this maybe airy fairy idea about, well, how do you affect the future from the present and are we in Star Trek here? And, you know, what are all these science fiction sort of concepts? So I think everybody, not everybody, but certain people have a natural or like an innate ability. I think when you pair that up with these techniques, that's, that's where the power comes. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about the, the, the rainbow nation and it, it, it's almost, that's almost like a futuristic name to give, yes. you know, this, this future state as well. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, you know, futurists stepping up, it seems like South Africa actually does have incredible things like Africa as a whole. Incredible. Yes. It's an incredibly large continent with, with a rich and, and wildly varied and, and vibrant uh, culture from Somalia yeah. to Nigeria, 
to Kenya, to Cote d'Ivoire, all the way up to, I was in Morocco a, a couple of years ago. And, you know, there's ancient technologies and yeah. that, that sit next to, you know, some of the world's largest solar farms. So what's so special in, in Africa? You know, what's in the soil? It's, it's, the, cradle, it's the cradle of humanity, oh, right? Correct, is, correct, is, yeah. is, 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 it, is it also the foundation for the future? Well, I certainly believe that. I, um, you know, if I tie this back to some of the nuances in my, in my uh, PhD research, so I think there is something that happened, if we go back an industrial revolution to the third industrial revolution and, and, and think about um, that whole process being around computerization. If you go back to the 80s and you just think about where countries like India and the Philippines were as economic centers, computerization happens. And I'll quickly jump forward to where we are today and you think about outsourcing, offshore software development. Those countries had no place notionally when you think about where that technology, where those technology ideas started, right? Had no place, no place to access, to contribute, to participate. And lo and behold, here we sit in a reality today where the third industrial revolution is, in, in my argument, fundamentally about the role of countries like India and the Philippines. So you ask whether what's so special about Africa, is it the, so I, I mean, this is really the thread I'm, I'm trying to pull on in, in my research. I think that it's possible and definitely there is plenty of raw material if i can use that expression unconstrained thinkers future oriented positive people people oriented people there are a whole lot of cultural and i'm and, and i don't mean to talk about africa as just one big uh, uh, homogenous place so this is the other thing a very diverse sort of a setting which is all which is i think all the ingredients you 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 need for a rethink and an imagining of alternative possibilities. So the fourth industrial revolution today is all about AI and cloud technology and all stuff that requires all kinds of scary infrastructure. But Nick, I got to tell you, I am brimming with excitement to see what places like Kenya, to see what um, Egypt, to see what Nigeria is going to contribute and South Africa is going to contribute to the fourth industrial revolution. And when we look back in 10 years, and say, wow, we thought there was just going to be a whole lot of robots and things going on. But, ooh, look, we're doing much better with food security using these technologies. So, you know, this obsession on capital and production efficiency, uh, manufacturing lots and lots of products for mass markets. I think places like Africa force the conversation in a different direction. And this is what excites me. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's not good that we don't bring everything together, together and, often, yeah. and often say, you know what, there is Asia and there's the West and maybe the West is South America, North America, it's Europe and it's the countries, it's the Baltics and split them yes. all out and, and then can join them together and weave a new fabric of yeah. futures thinking. Uh, Monica Bilskite was the last... Uh, uh, episode nine uh, of the Exponential Minds podcast. And she was saying that, you know, we've just been ignoring all of the solutions around yes. dealing with the pandemic that have been coming out of Africa. I mean, the, the $1 test that was developed in Somalia, the, the new yeah. ways of getting over the lockdown and, and management of governments, it's been incredible. It's actually been, people were looking at Africa and like, oh my God, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be destroyed by COVID-19. It's like, well, no, that hasn't happened. Africa is full of smart, driven, excited, 
foresight thinkers, strategic right. thinkers, governments that are collaborating, yeah. people that are trying to deal with some pretty harsh conditions. And I also think, Nick, what doesn't get maybe enough airtime is actually the facts of how influential uh, people shaping public response, public policy res and response in African countries, the, the people shaping that, how capable and globally and, and what global actors they are. I'll call out the example of in South Africa, and I'm obviously paying a lot of attention to just what's happening there because of my family and everyone that still lives in South Africa. The task force on COVID-19 response is, is headed by a professor. His name escapes me, but I was flabbergasted when I was reading his profile to understand that this gentleman is a fellow of um, uh, um, some, in again, the details escape me, but I'm talking about global recognition is a Harvard lecturer, uh, um, visiting lecturer, so is, all, is, is already contributing in an academic sense to, to, to human, I don't know, knowledge, aggregate human knowledge on, on all stages. And so we have somebody impactful and broad-minded, if I can say that, shaping public policy and the response plans for a pandemic in a place like South Africa. Now that's not necessarily, that's not necessarily true in every country in Africa or even in the West, if we want to talk about Europe and here in North America, there's a lot more say, for example, politicization and, and you know, vested interest maybe playing out in how countries are responding. But I just think it's very like, and, and I know maybe this is a personal view, but I think it's very positive to see experts, knowledgeable people forming solutions to problems that require expertise and knowledge rather than just taking shots in the dark, right? These are people's lives where we're having to contemplate. Yes, no one's got the perfect answer. This is not the kind of situation that we're dealing with. But, you know, knowledge, it's nice to see knowledge and expertise still counts for something somewhere in the world. <laughs> I think as foresight practitioners, we understand that there's not a perfect present. There was never a perfect past. And there's yes. never going to be a perfect, perfect number of futures that we, that we step towards. And right. I think that realism is really hard for the clients that we work with to, to really get a grasp on because they're like, you know, we, 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 we want to create this future state and we need to know what products and services are there. And we need to know how we can monetize that. And we need to know, you know, revenue streams and whatever. And, and what's, what's been happening with me is working with clients to realize that uncertainty, even knowing a direction right now is incredibly empowering for their organization. You know, Nick, that is the big pivot. If there's one thing I wish I could let everybody understand, this idea that, because I think still too many people believe, and, and, and it's because of the focus maybe in a corporate setting, you get focused on a very near term, but this idea that people want to know what is the future, as opposed to trying to think about what future do I want? and then move into an agency, like, you know, feeling like I can affect and I can influence and not just be a victim of some dynamic that I'm totally disconnected from. So, um, yeah, when you focus very narrowly, then it means that you can't really change much. Most of your momentum is there, but I think once people, and, and, and there's a place for that, don't get me wrong. This isn't an either or, it's either and, as they say, right? You've got to be doing a little bit of both things. We have to be whole, entities, not just focused on the next quarterly or to the street or the next set of financial results. There's, our reality is much more complex than that, right? 
and that that complexity it it also you know brings in the dimensions of spirituality of nature and human society and, and values and, yeah and values but really what future do we deserve uh, you, you you talk about you know what is the future tell me the answer which is typically every first meeting with anyone yeah. that wants to <laughs> to work with us and it's what future do do you want and then it's like well yeah. you know this and this and this and typically you know they're looking at the end of their nose they're not Correct. they're not yeah. even even looking at, at what's happening out there in the world they're yeah. not using metaphor they're not they're not really exploring creatively what they can do and asking and it's the question that i ask what future do we deserve and and this is actually a nice segue to sort of go in to talk a little bit about this paper that you and your colleagues yes. put together for the journal of future studies which is really exciting and and the paper is called system of life a metaphor for reimagining the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's just come out, and we'll, we'll put a link to that down in the de description as well. Can you just uh, talk a little bit about what sort of prompted you and the team at Slalom to, to, to do this work and, and what, what the, the paper discusses? About 12 weeks or so ago, all of us, certainly in Slalom, but not just in Slalom, were forced you know, out of our uh, normal processes of meeting clients and doing projects and whatever into just suddenly having to cocoon and work from home. And um, there was, I think, a whole lot of intellectual uh, flurrying going on, I think, just while people try to figure out what was going on. But um, in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, as it hit North America, we were doing some authoring of work for like LinkedIn and sort of under a corporate banner. And that was fine. In fact, it was a very productive period from a publishing LinkedIn articles and things perspective. There was one frustration though, which was, I think we had as, as a community of foresight practitioners in Slalom, we, we, we had this idea that we were trying to talk to people about strategic foresight, but needed to also be able to show what comes out when you apply strategic foresight techniques. And that's sometimes a little hard to do in a, a, like a corporate pamphlet kind of a mechanism. And so we thought, well, let us apply one of the uh, futures techniques. There's a technique called causal layered analysis, which sounds very complicated, but, and I'll try and break it down. But that's what we decided to do was that while we were all stuck in our houses, it was a chance to learn two things or maybe three things at least. One was to use a technique on something real that was affecting all of us to move out of or figure out what it's like to, to work together without being in the same physical space and to work with, a, uh, with, with people who had different levels of, let's call it expertise, but everybody was future conscious. So all these ingredients that we've spoken about before, right? We were trying to bring that together a little bit. So we kind of went through um, an exercise, the, the uh, technique, Causalate analysis uh, really tries to say, let's look at what goes on at the surface out in the world. Let's look at what's going on on TV. What headlines are we hearing? What are people talking about at the water cooler? And let's try and understand where is all of that coming from? Not just what's being said, but also how people feel about what's being said. Where is that really coming from? And, and sort of stripping away at the layers. And so that's why they talk about a layered model. I won't go into the specific details, but maybe I think what's more interesting is some of the things we observed as we collaborated together, there were nine of us spread around North America. I think the first thing that we observed was that for 
many of, well, certainly for us as North Americans and understanding this is a global pandemic, but for North American people, instead of while this pandemic is about people getting sick, there's an element of this pandemic that forced all of us into a virtual reality that we didn't really, we lived to in some extent before the pandemic and suddenly it was our dominant reality. So this idea that a pandemic doesn't just have biological effects, it has reality altering effects, right? So, so I think that was, an, that was an interesting one. We also saw as we kind of went down the layers of the analysis model, some of the motives and some of the worldviews that were informing fear and panic and these kinds of things. I remember the, the one thing that, that, that popped out again from a view of a North American observer was that the pandemic was something viewed as out there in Wuhan or wherever, and it was having to get here. And as we were debating that, some of us thought, yeah, but I, I mean, that's just a geographic split. What about the fact that as a species, we're all humans susceptible to this thing? So I, the notion of trying to disconnect ourselves from people going through it at a species level makes no sense. It might make sense at a geography level, but not at a species level. And eventually we kind of got down to these two core ideas uh, that we felt was driving how the world at large today maybe was thinking about what was going on in the pandemic. One was called the hostile world uh, myth, kind of or mythology, which was this idea that you kind of, you know, you can travel through the world as a human being with a lot of different lenses on. And the one lens that, that seems to be informing all the panic and the stat, all the stats about people dying and, and that whole narrative is that the world is essentially a hostile place. Everything in it is out to kill us. Uh, the, the, the successful are the ones who survive, you know, all kinds of narratives along those lines. And then there was another myth about human superiority that we were offended somehow that this invisible microscopic organism was wreaking such havoc. We are the apex. <laughs> we are the apex right. species. How dare you challenge our position? And, and so some interesting core, core ideas. And we said, well, okay, if we were to let go of that, how else could we think about it? And this is where this reimagining comes from. And then when you, when you think differently, you can potentially start to react differently. And that is what system of life is, 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 is meant to entail. So instead of feeling superior as humans and, and, and seeing the world outside as a threat, what if we just saw ourselves as part of a broader system that is constantly interacting, bumping up against one another, inherently vibrant, constantly evolving, um, and that actually, so these myths are not disconnected. Our quote-unquote superiority is actually an earned position, not an entitled position. So we have immune systems, we have stuff that has grown up, you know, over thousands of years, millions of years that we benefit from today. And, and, it was, and, and that myth was trying to connect ourselves to our broader uh, uh, place in this system of life. Again, Nick, these are not new ideas. I think uh, that uh, uh, classic novel H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds is all about how we're able to survive a an alien invasion from Mars by virtue of bacteria that we had naturally adapted to as a species over time. So um, again, nothing really novel. I'm not arguing that we're, you know, solving the world's problems here, but it's just reframing how we think about things. And so, so, so when, and, and just the last thing to say, so when we send it back up that and, and, and said, well, okay, then what's missing from the narrative? Well, it's good that we're waiting for vaccines. It's good that we're, uh, you know, pushing emergency response and all of that. 
but where therein is the narrative about let's bolster our immune systems, let's work with the tools we've been ignoring and not obsess about technological solutions to biological problems for which we already have great capabilities. If we stopped feeding ourselves crap, sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on the podcast, but if we, if, if we feed ourselves better, if we rest better, if we nurture our immune systems, then the impact of something like a COVID, which uh, you know is pretty bad, but didn't have to be this bad, and it's actually going to be our protection. I mean, you know, COVID-19 is there today. There are going to be many other threats like this that we'll have to encounter as and, and confront as a, as a civilization. And so let's put let's bring all our tools to bear, not just our vaccines, right? Yeah, and this is systems thinking, right? And what's happened with government? If you look at it in China, actually. They, they found it, they kind of denied it, they kind of covered it up, they didn't work hard enough. But then when they decided to go, okay, you know, we've told the world we need to take care of what's happening at home, systems. It was all about systematic thinking. And even now, I think yeah. last week, that there was a potential new outbreak in northern China. And they, within like a week, I think, they tested something like 9 million residents, all the residents and completely had a view of, of, the, baseline. of the, system, yeah. a, the baseline of the system. They knew how to shut it down. They knew what to do. Correct. Whether, whether their initial response was a good, a good systematic approach or not, it was still better than no systematic approach at all, yeah. which we're seeing a lot of, a lot of other Correct. countries having, which is a bit shambolic because everything started with denial which yes, isn't, at, yeah. isn't, isn't a good place to start when you're actually trying to come up with a solution. Right? I suppose it's a very human response. And of course, viruses and things don't care about how people feel about things. <laughs> they just do what viruses do, right? I, I think Nick, the other thing I want to add to that is, you know, it's about responding to the virus in the moment. But look at all the other weird things that have started to happen in society about people victimizing people that appear from a certain, you know, all these behaviors can, like we could trace them back to these ideas about hostile world and stuff like that. And I think governments, for example, have one problem to deal with, which is I'd say the sort of health problem, but there's these, all these other dimensions of, you know, what does this mean for the social contract and societal fabric and leaders, I say governments, but leaders in any setting, this is one of our other themes, have an obligation to reframe the conversation for people and not just ask them to be better, to stop targeting and victimizing people. You have to engage people and go, does it really make sense to do that? Or where are you even coming from when you do that? You don't have to do that. You don't have to think like that or, or approach things that way. And so, yes, the response and the controlling of information and is, is one dimension. But as we said before, this thing is affecting us and waking us up to many aspects of ourselves, not just our health or our financial and economic. There's values. What are our values? What are our societal norms? What are we comfortable with? What are we not comfortable with? So it's a biological thing, but back to our point, everything's interconnected, right? And, and so I think in futures, this is a lot of the training that we get, right, is to be multidimensional and to be integrated in our thinking. It's almost hard to just compartmentalize things and think that well, that's completely disconnected from any and everything else in our reality. And I think part of this is knowing when, when and who to hand it off to as well. Because we design, we design some futures, inverted, inverted commas. But then is it just a report that sits on the shelf Correct. and it's consumed for three or four weeks? 
and everyone's like patting everyone on the back and saying good work and yeah. then it disappears into the ether and we and we fall back into bad practice as a society correct or we say his future's thinking here are the outputs here are the prompts over to you designers whether you're a policy designer whether whether you're a visual designer or communications designer or whatever and that's what's what's failing i was on i was on the radio in toronto yesterday I'm being incredibly angry at the, you know, the provincial premier and the mayor of Toronto because they haven't done any systematic thinking and they're trying to fix social distancing by just like searching social distancing on the internet. Oh, San Francisco's drawing circles in, in Dolores Park. Let's do that in Trinity Bellwoods Park. That's not what we do because Torontonians are not San Franciscans. And actually right. in San Francisco, people that live in the mission are very different from people that live on Russian Hill. We can be critical like that. And that's what I, I find really interesting about what you're saying with that causal layer analysis is really breaking it down. And, you know, the hostile world, human yeah. superiority, the metaphors that we use, these are, these are the things that, that pop up in bias every single day. Correct. I mean, and I think futures practitioners uh, need to teach other people to to shake off that bias and, yeah. and really push it out. I, I was recently working with a client and we're talking, I was talking about gun activists in the U S and my client was, was saying, it's like, they're allowed to do this. I had a bias against them, but people yes. in the U S <laughs> can go and buy a gun. They, you know, as long as they don't get, walk around shooting people, they can yeah. still carry it in certain places, whatever. So, you know, we're constantly challenging, not everything is our preferable futures. That comes down to a personal choice somewhat, right? But um, it's really interesting. And it, it's great chatting to you, uh, Rafika, because I, I think having this perspective of, of you coming from South Africa, now you live in Canada. Now you're doing this work and, and, you, and you've maintained that, that global perspective is, is really important. I mean, growing a futures team is not easy. It takes time. And oftentimes people don't believe that it's worth spending time yeah. designing the future. I mean, what's the one piece of advice that you can give anyone thinking about, you know, in their consultancy or, or maybe they're just a strategic practitioner wanting to step forward into, into futures practice? What's that, what's that one nugget of yeah. advice that, that you, you would give someone? Nick, I'm going to go back to one of the things we found, or one of the conclusions we arrived at in the in the paper that um, we, we just published in the Journal of Future Studies. It was this notion of the importance of a skilled facilitator. You you just said that our role as futurists, we in a way fail if we just make a report and don't have any kind of lasting impact on on the people that that we work with. So this idea that working with skilled facilitators is really the thing that unlocks impact unlocks in like if you say an organization giving you know giving people new muscles extra muscles to work with understanding the techniques having experience in in walking with people to to awaken their own abilities in respect to those techniques this i think is maybe the thing that doesn't get enough uh, of, a, of, a, of a spotlight, and that's why we really raised it as, a, as an important conclusion. Finding people who have track record and capability, working with them, understanding that they're not just going to do it to you, the, that it's more a thing about awakening things within yourself, 
you know, as a client and that having an impact long after the futurists or the consultants have left, there is far more to do about this futures work than there are futurists in the world right now. So the trick is about turning in a way everyone in, 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 into a futurist. I'm, I'm sorry if that sounds a little world domination-y, but I, but I do think that I'm, I'm really coming from a place where when you see the impact that even small amounts of futurists can have, I just, I'm thrilled at the prospect. Imagine if we could multiply that. And not everybody has to be an expert, but skill and you know, uh, uh, technique is also still important. So I'd say that's, that's, the, one, that's the one big nugget if you hold me to just one. There is another yeah. one. You know, there is, there's something actually that you say that resonates a lot, Nick, which is to get into this what-if mindset. And I think the idea of, instead of just trying to lock onto what's next and what now and, you know, how do I deal with this thing in front of me? We take a step back. I understand when you say what-if, it means let's just take a step back and just look a little to the side and a little up and down and not just right in front of us. I think. It sounds such a simple notion. My second nugget is, it goes back to something that I've seen you say, Nick, which is adopting this what-if mindset. That is very resonant. Uh, I think there's so much of a focus on just the what next and the what now, or how do I deal with this? A lot of us focus, especially in this midst of this pandemic, focused on really what's right in front of us. But that discipline, that courage to just pause a second, step back, look a little wider, and try to see different things and also imagine different things is a very important mode that we all have to get into. And if COVID has taught us one thing, it's the value or, or, the, or the need, the urgency to be able to pivot in that way. So this what-if mindset, I, I really like that idea and it connects strongly to, to, I think, this general discipline of futures thinking. I don't think I could have said it better myself. And uh, I actually think that we're, we're taking a step towards a golden age of strategic and practical futures thinking. And, and that is the what, most exciting thing. So Rafiq Bosch, friend, futurist, big thinker, revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, um, you know, building your own futures practice within Slotin Consulting. I'd like to thank you very much for being part of the Exponential Minds podcast. I'm pretty sure we're going to, going to do this some more. Where, where can people find you online, Rafiq? You can get my LinkedIn profile, Rafiq Bosch. If you want to contact me, rafiq.bosch at slalom.com. We can put all the links into, into the um, notification on that as well, Nick. I'm very easy to find. <laughs> so go out there, look at Rafiq uh, Bosch. I'm going to put his Dark Futures talk on the fourth industrial revolution uh, in, in the description along with his contact details. Incredibly smart guy, great friend. Uh, I hope to see you soon in person, but um, it might be a little while. Thank you very much for a chance to come in and chat to you today. This has been wonderful. Let's keep going into the future, my man. Yeah, absolutely. See, see you soon, Rafiq.